Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Our guest for today is the Vice Provost of Student Affairs, Susie Brubaker-Cole. Susie, would you mind introducing yourself? Hello, everyone. I'm Susie Brubaker-Cole. I use she, her pronouns. I uh, have been here at Stanford as Vice Provost for three years now. And I actually was at Stanford from 2000 to 2008 in the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, where I oversaw advising and undergraduate research. So someone told me I'm a boomerang, meaning I'm, I'm back to Stanford after being away for a while. What inspired you to get involved in education? Oh, God, that's a great question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get pretty personal here in answering that, because I don't think there's another way to answer it. I grew up in a family um, with a very um, domineering, um, paternalistic father. Um, and I always felt unseen and silenced in the family. Um, and I had some teachers in high school, as I'm sure many of you did, who saw me and opened my heart and helped me to find my own voice. And um, I think it was through that experience that I realized the power of education and relationships with teachers and learning um, to, to change lives. Um, and then when all of that is, is aggregated into the collective to change our world and our society, um, it's funny, sometimes I think about what would it be like to be working in, um, you know, the for-profit sector uh, as opposed to in higher education. And I just like, I, I cannot imagine myself in that setting um, because what, what drives me personally is wanting to feel like I'm somehow directly, indirectly, all of those things shaping positive change in the world. And, you know, Lord knows our world is in need of a lot of um, positive change right now. And so I think that, that, that that's what, what drove me there on a personal level. You know, I'll also say that I was originally supposed to become a French professor. So I did my PhD in French and um, I studied um, French literature of the francophone world predominantly uh, Martinique and, and Sub-Saharan Africa during the colonial period, but also um, sort of 20th, 19th and 20th century French literature generally. Um, so I was supposed to be a professor. And I remember, um, you know, midpoint, it was a six-year joint master's PhD program. I was at Yale and um, kind of midpoint, I realized I was unhappy and um, had to ask myself some tough questions and, you know, fell into a clinical depression and had some really tough times. And I realized working through those very personal mental health issues that I wasn't thriving in the mode of humanities scholarship, becoming a humanities scholar in my, in my French PhD program. And I realized that I needed to be connected to people more. Um, now teaching of course is connecting to people, but I just felt like I needed to have more of a feeling of immediate impact um, and engagement with, with the world. And so I, I turned toward working in um, education administration, um, because I felt like that was an area where I could make a difference and where I would have more opportunity to work with people. So, you know, the life of a humanities scholars can be pretty, pretty isolating, um, you know, working in archives and working in libraries and writing papers independently and that sort of thing. It's different from the sciences and social sciences in that way. Um, at least it was when I was in graduate school. I think it's evolved a bit. And so, so I made a decision at that point to change career paths. And that's how I ended up going into um, administrative roles, working in education rather than being a professor is wonderful that you feel comfortable sharing personal details in a slightly strange venue like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm, 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 I'm fine with that. Thank you for asking um, good questions. 
So I think mental health is something that a lot of people are struggling with right now and finding motivation to continue with education. A lot of people are taking gap years, not necessarily as a lack of motivation, but just because it's difficult to want to do education in COVID because there's no community. And while family can definitely be a community of sorts, it's not the same as being on campus. So how do you think campus is going to be promoting mental well-being this year? Well, there's, 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 there's so many challenges in that cricket. <laughs> um, let me start by saying that I'm deeply concerned about students' mental well-being right now, about staff mental well-being right now, faculty mental well-being. So I think the whole university campus is challenged with, with the conditions we're living under, whatever part of the country or world we're in. Um, and I think the other really, really critical component of that is that, uh, yeah, on campus, I have, I have a lot of concerns about mental health of students who are living on campus, but I also am concerned about students who are going to be enrolled and off campus across the country. It's, it's a huge concern. Um, let me just kind of talk about a few things that are hard on campus and a few things that we're doing to help on campus. Hard on campus is the fact that Santa Clara County, where Stanford is, is still effectively under shelter-in-place orders. And uh, the county and the state do not allow gatherings. They have a lot of uh, restrictions on the ways that we can interact. And of course, those are responsible, um, important restrictions because people are dying of this pandemic. And we need to all contribute to reducing the infection rates and, and ultimately eliminating the pandemic. And of course, we know that the ways to do that are through um, distancing and use of face masks and, and hygiene. But that, that said, I'm really concerned about um, the ability of students on campus to feel connection. You know, we have, for example, for undergraduates, we'll have about 700 or so undergraduates on campus who are students that have been minoritized by COVID in some way, have some sort of special circumstances in their lives that makes it important that they be on campus to have a learning experience here. And I think that's that's really important because a lot of those students would be facing extraordinary stressors in their home communities. We've also been able to use a, a housing facility on campus that is going to be less isolating and safer than traditional dorms would be. We're going to be using one of the new graduate um, student residential towers, EBGRA it's called, and uh, that has two-bedroom apartments so that students can have a roommate rather than have to be isolated in their room alone. So I think that that's, that's good. We are also continuing all of the supports that we have under normal circumstances, which includes, of course, CAPS, but also our well-being coaches that have been really, really important um, resource for a number of students for their well-being. And um, our community centers are, of course, going to continue to be building community and supporting community. They'll do it in a virtual uh, way, but I think that'll be really important that those communities stay vibrant, along with many, many other student organizations on campus. Um, but it's, it's a huge concern. I think that the pressure to continue to be productive and to be on and to be um, achieving is unrealistic because of all of the ways that we're not able to connect with people. I think so much of learning involves social interaction. And, and so I, I'm concerned that learning will be compromised in that way, just from a learning perspective, but also from a well-being perspective. I think we've, we've got a lot of work to do to support people. That is an interesting perspective because I remember talking to some people who had stayed on campus for spring quarter, and they yeah. felt that it was incredibly isolating. 
Yes. If not because of their circumstances, then just because they weren't really allowed to have gatherings with people. Yep. And I think that anyone staying on campus is going to maybe subconsciously expect some form of community that resembles what campus is like when it's um, vibrant and full of students. Yeah, and it's it, it's been interesting to observe spring quarter with very small numbers of undergraduates on campus. The graduate students are, are, are a larger number, but um, I think we've had about somewhere around 200 undergrads on campus this summer. And like you said, gatherings are not allowed. And indeed, the university uh, surveyed students about their experience during the spring, and the results showed that mental health, self-reported mental health outcomes for students who are on campus were worse than those students who are off campus. We're going to have a lower ratio of resident assistance in the undergraduate dorms this year as a way of helping to build community and build connection. And while that's going to have to be virtual, I think that that's better than nothing for sure. And I, I have a lot of faith in the creativity of, of the RAs to help students feel connected online and be able to battle some of that isolation that, that, that would happen. And again, I do think it's going to matter that students can have, can have roommates, which was apartment mates, which wasn't the case, hasn't been the case over summer and, and spring. But it's a deep concern for sure. So how do you think then that the new grading policy is going to contribute to mental health? Because I'm concerned Ugh. that having letter grades is not a good idea. Yeah, I've heard some really interesting perspectives on that over the last couple of months. And, you know, I'll say that as vice provost for student affairs, the academic realm is not my, my focus, but I'm very concerned about it. Some of what I'm hearing is that uh, what, what I mentioned earlier about the pressures to perform and achieve under all of the stressors of this moment, which includes the stressors of the ongoing violence against black and brown people in this country, the stressors of the pandemic, and here on campus, the stressors of the wildfires, those all add up and undermine our sense of well-being and ability to focus. And, and so it is concerning that grades in the minds of many students, raise the stakes of that achievement and performance pressure. I think that that also has arisen in really disturbing ways around academic integrity and academic honesty. There has been a lot of discussion about honor code violations during uh, spring quarter uh, in under virtual learning and lots of concerns about how some students have made a really bad decision to utilize online kind of tutoring and test or assignment answering services. I've heard of something called CHEG and another one called, I think it's uh, Task Overflow, um, where students post um, homework assignments, exam questions, and it's all done anonymously, so you can't track who's done it. And uh, I mean, that's, that's just a real breach of personal integrity to do that. And I find it really upsetting and disturbing that students are doing that. But I think it probably also speaks to the pressures that they're feeling to try to maintain academic performance in the face of all of the other stressors in, in our lives right now. You know, this is also interesting in that there's a, there's a real socioeconomic unfairness in this, in that you have to pay to get these answers. And I'm not saying, oh, it's okay if you pay. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, but these are not free services, obviously. And it certainly raises issues for lower income students who feel that you know, they're falling behind peers who are able to pay for these services. And that's just another layer of unfairness that is deeply disturbing what's happening right now. So what does honor mean to you in the virtual academic context? I don't think that honor means anything different in virtual than it does in, in uh, in-person live instruction. And it means aligning our actions 
with our commitments to fairness in the community and with the, the honor code where we as a community have decided to trust each other in our academic integrity. And, and that, that's what honor should, should mean. I have been witness to a number of very interesting conversations amongst faculty and students about whether the honor code is the right mechanism for the virtual environment, and indeed, whether the honor code is the right mechanism even for in-person instruction. There was a really interesting discussion. I can't remember the timing of it, but it was last, I want to say, winter quarter, although it could have been spring, the faculty senate about the honor code. And there were some people who were questioning whether the honor code is still the right mechanism. Apparently, cheating is much more rampant in high schools across the country, and it has become more of a norm in high schools. And so there's a sense that if this is the norm that students are experiencing in high school, then is this the right thing to do at Stanford? Now, that's a bigger discussion to have. I don't think anybody has concluded that the honor code should be thrown out. I think ideally the honor code is something we would like to see upheld. But if it's not working, I think we ask some, we need to ask some really hard questions. And, you know, a couple of things that people are thinking about. Should we create some policy change at Stanford to support the online integrity, academic integrity of the online learning period? Should we grant students anonymity in reporting? One of the things we've heard is that students have felt pressured to not report when they become aware of a peer cheating. Students have felt bullied when they have reported they have experienced retaliation. And that's, that's deeply concerning for, for the students who are experiencing it, but also just as, as a really toxic dynamic circulating in our student community. I, I, that's deeply distressing to me. So, you know, granting student anonymity and reporting could help with that. Um, should we consider some proctoring in in-person or remote testing environments? Uh, you know, if it were to do this remotely, then, you know, maybe there could be a TA who could be online for an exam and then could answer questions for students privately in the chat or something like that. I don't know. But there's a group of faculty uh, that was looking at this this summer, and those are some of the things they discussed. I don't know that any of those is the right answer, but it's a conversation that's really important. Um, I would also add that in the longer term, the ASSU, the administration, and the faculty senate has joined together to seat a committee called the Committee of Ten that acting under the current judicial charter of the university is going to study whether changes should be made to the judicial charter and to the honor code. It's being chaired by uh, Professor Deborah Rohde, who's a law professor here who actually uh, wrote a book on academic integrity and cheating. So really, really interesting person to be leading that group. It's comprised of, let's see, it's a committee of 10. So there's four faculty, four students, and then two staff. Um, and they are working currently, will continue their work through fall quarter, ask some of these questions and see if policy changes indeed warranted. That was a mouthful. Wow. That was a great answer, though. Um, I generally think that the honor code is mostly applicable to students, but I also think it's an agreement that students will be academically honest and fair, and also that faculty will do the same. Would yeah, you agree with that? absolutely. So what do you think then that academic fairness looks like when it comes to the relationship between faculty and students? Well, the nature of the honor code, that's a hard question, Cricket. Um, so the nature of the honor code is that faculty need to trust students. Faculty need to be um, transparent with students about their assessment methods, their testing methods. Faculty need to provide an environment that is not conducive to cheating. And I think that that's, that's something that uh, is more challenging now. And so I think, I, I mean, I would love it if, if the faculty would think about 
what does it mean to create ways of assessing student learning that are not as conducive to cheating? You know, one way to, to do that would be to have fewer, you know, high stakes end of quarter exams and more formative assessment throughout the quarter. Um, that's really hard in, in large classes in particular, but, you know, what are other ways of assessing student learning besides the exams that are more conducive to cheating? And I think that would be a really excellent thing for faculty to continue to think about. I know many are thinking about it. I don't, I don't want to paint it as faculty aren't thinking about it. They are thinking about it actively. I heard one faculty member mention how oral exam or, or interview, if you, whatever, um, would be a great way to avoid cheating on, on exams. But of course, that would be really hard to pull off in a large course. Um, how would you, how on earth would you um, find the time and capacity to have a, a live oral exam with every student? But, but just think how meaningful that would be to sit one-on-one with a TA or with an instructor and be asked questions about your learning and be able to go in deep like that. I mean, that sounds like a really interesting, fulfilling and reinforcing process. Yes, I definitely agree with that. I think one concern that people have had, particularly during spring quarter, was that instructors were not given a quote-unquote finals period, but some of them chose to still have exams on the last day of class, which I think still count as finals. And that, given everything that's been going on, was not particularly conducive to good mental health. So Totally agree. That sounds really slippery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, you know, midterms during week eight of the quarter. That basically counts as a final at that point. Um, so unless it's only assessing like, you know, week seven and eight, something like that, that, that would make, that would be a, 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 an incremental formative assessment. That could be a good thing if it was those smaller tests throughout the quarter, but point well taken. I see what you're getting at. In my experience, it was, it was a midterm that was testing everything through week eight, which I didn't particularly think fair, but especially this quarter, would you encourage faculty to consider students' mental health and well-being? I think that should be part of the honor code. That's an interesting idea. I am no faculty member. I have no purview over faculty, and I have deep respect for their expertise. But from what I hear from students, faculty are creating conditions that are not helpful in learning because of the additional stress that, that it causes. And there's a whole range of things that, that contribute to stress in the classroom and stress in the learning environment that, are, that undermine student learning and the student's ability to engage as their, as their best, strongest learners. So, so I would encourage all faculty to take account of the extraordinary time we're living in and, and not assume that students are you know, Teflon and just can have the stresses of these crises that we're in be separate from who they are as learners. You can't do that. And I know there are so many faculty who care deeply and who are taking steps like that. I I just think that um, there probably is room for more. Yeah, I definitely agree. I saw an article on LinkedIn a few days ago about how everyone's constantly being put into environments where they have to exercise resilience and we shouldn't have to do that as constantly as we do. So that's a really good, relevant point. Um, I saw an article also about no matter how deep our wells, personal wells of resilience are, most of us are feeling like we're getting down there to the bottom. This has been a long, long crisis. I feel it myself personally. I know students are feeling it. And um, boy, the pace of a quarter can be exhausting when, when one's well of resilience is, is getting low. And that's, that's a reality that we have to accept. Yeah, definitely. There was a situation during winter quarter where I was asked to 
be involved in something that I felt like went against my personal values a little bit, but this was for work. And I think that's only relevant here in that a lot of times people will be asked to figure out how to deal with balancing academics with the fact that they need to care for themselves. How would you suggest that people go about that? So let me make sure I understand the question. How, how would I suggest that people care for themselves and not succumb to all of the pressure to just become academic robots? <laughs> Is that a good interpretation of it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. I think that one of the first things that, that students should do is, and I know this is hard, um, instructor by instructor and class by class, but establish a relationship with their faculty. Now, that's hard because, you know, if every student tries to establish a relationship with, with faculty member, that's, that's a lot of load. But I do think that there are, there are so many faculty who care and who are willing to be flexible with students. So I guess I would say don't assume that the answer from a faculty member is going to be no, go away. So many faculty that I, that I speak with care deeply and want to know when a student is experiencing extraordinary stress and wants to be helpful. So that'd be my first advice. Um, my second advice would be to think about an image that Sarah Church and I used borrowing from a student in our last, or one of our last reapproaching Stanford newsletters, which was this image of climbing a ladder where a student said, you know, I feel like we're climbing a ladder at Stanford and all of this has just made me feel like I've fallen off and now what do I do? And Sarah and I discussed how this may be an opportunity to consider not getting back on that ladder. And, you know, I'm a parent of two high school students, so I'm, I'm dealing with this on a personal level and I hope it translates here well. But um, I think we need to put to question the pressures that we put on ourselves to meet certain standards of academic achievement and to recognize that there, there is no such thing as achievement without personal well-being. And so I think we need to make space in our lives for that. Now, I know that there are some very high stakes for students in thinking about admissions to graduate school or parental expectations, those types of things um, that drive academic achievement. But, but I also um, think it's important that, that we all pause, that students pause and take compassion um, with themselves and think about what do I need to do to, to sustain a basic level of resilience and well-being? And does that mean that I may need to accept less from myself in terms of um, grades? Are there some things where I can do 80% and I don't have to do 100% as I usually expect of myself, those types of things? I guess the last thing I would say is I think it's really important that we normalize and talk about and destigmatize the struggles that we are experiencing during this pandemic, but I would say it goes way beyond that and goes into our lives generally. I know that there can be compounding negative outcomes when we're feeling extraordinarily stressed, depressed, anxious, and we feel like there's something wrong with us because we're feeling that. Um, and I think there's, there's so much value to making mental well-being something that we talk about something that's a part of uh, what we need to work on as a community and as an environment. And I include in that an instructional environment, um, but also things that we need to support each other in personally. I do believe that there is a cultural community and environmental component to promoting well-being and to making space for people to care for themselves and not only their, their academic achievement. I agree. And I think what I would add to that is, first of all, that students should be really cognizant of their own capacities to achieve when it comes to academics and 
picking the grading basis that they want to apply to each class. I know that I probably will not be taking everything for letter grades this quarter, which is hard because then you have to explain to grad schools, oh, why is everything satisfactory, no credit when you could have when you could have had a letter grade on here? Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, I, I would I would second that cricket. I think that's really good advice to give yourself permission to take the grading basis that you need in order to stay well. And I've had a number of interactions with um, faculty uh, who uh, participate in graduate admissions who've said, well, everyone is going to recognize these years <laughs> are uh, going to look different on students' transcripts for a whole range of reasons. I would hope so. And I also I think... I would too. And yeah, I also just for humanity. That, yeah, and I also think that any student who is applying to a graduate school who that chooses not to recognize why they might cho choose to take satisfactory no credit courses, it's probably not, you know, it's probably not worth going to at that point. Mm, good point. The other thing that I would say is that I would encourage every professor to offer at least one office hour a week where students are encouraged to come and not talk about anything remotely academic because I think that might help foster relationships. That's a great idea. That would be fulfilling for everyone, I think. Yeah. And uh, I bet there would be an increase in the number of people that come to office hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I hear all the time from students that they want to know their instructors, they want to know administrators as human beings. And that, you know, I said earlier that I think human relationships are so important to learning. And that just, that, I think that would be a beautiful thing to have those office hours that are about just spanning time together, talking about something and getting to know each other as people and building that human connection. Yeah, so I hope professors listen to this. All um, right. Um, so we are sort of running out of time here, but I want to ask what the Student Affairs Office is planning to do this year to help maintain people's connections with each other and to maintain community on campus. Yeah, well, this year is going to be extraordinarily challenging. I am not going to sugarcoat this. It's going to be a hard year for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and I think that times like these are really critical moments for us to reflect, to determine where and how we want to contribute and how we want to make meaning of our current circumstances. Um, and that goes back to what I was talking about with how this may be a time for students to accept that I'm going to step off that ladder I feel like I've had to climb um, and I'm going to think about how am I going to make meaning of the circumstances that we have been given in this moment, and how, how am I going to contribute? So a couple ways that we've been creating some foundational conditions, I think, for meaningful and, and as positive experience as possible is first, I think it's critical that we are ensuring that even though the cohorts are not able to come back, the Frosh and Soft cohorts aren't able to come back for fall quarter, which, were, which is a really sad thing, I think it's so critical that we are making sure that the students who've been minoritized by COVID, students with special circumstances are able to live on campus. So that's one thing we've done that I think is really important. We're also going to continue to provide counseling and the coaching support, the well-being coaching support I mentioned earlier for students with need, um, and also help students connect with the resources in the community. I think the community centers will be really important for that. One of the other things that we're doing to uh, for this particular moment in student affairs is we have had a group of our experts in, in trauma um, put together a training for our professional and student staff on trauma-informed care. There is a deep need for this type of expertise in this moment in particular, with trauma from what's happening in the pandemic, trauma from anti-Black racism that continues to circulate and the violence uh, perpetrated by police in, in communities across the United States. Um, and I want to make sure that we all are prepared to for, for this time of extraordinary trauma in, in our student population. We are continuing with a lot of our we're not canceling community center programming and support. We're continuing with it, even though they're going to be virtual. 
um, which is so important because so many students find home and support and education and inspiration through their engagement with the community centers. So for example, the, the program for entering Native American students, SNP, is going to be online. Uh, the graduate scholars and residents and the big SIB, little SIB programs, those are all going to continue. We're going to continue with student organizations to connect. And even when students are on their flex term, they can continue to participate in student orgs, which is something that's really important for student connection. I think another thing that's important is that even though we weren't able to bring students to campus in the fall, those cohorts, one of the priorities that we set is when we can bring students back to campus, we've made the larger assignment group so that during these really difficult and challenging times, people could have the people who are most important to them closest to them in their residences. One of the things that I know has been a real stressor for students is thinking about whether they can get internships and whether uh, they're going to find jobs, which is a major concern with the downturn of the economy. It's something I haven't really talked about yet is that that particular financial stressor. Uh, Beam Career Education has done some really powerful work to make more internship opportunities available to students, and including um, not just during summer, but during the other terms of the quarter. We've been working with the Alumni Association to try to identify more internships, working with alumni. And then all of their services, the one-on-one career coaching appointments are going to be online. The career fairs are going to continue online. Um, and I hope that that will be helpful for students as well. There's also one other program I just thought of actually that leverages the incredible alumni network that exists. It's a program, I think they're calling it Bridges, that's going to be available for this coming academic school year that provides opportunities to engage in sometimes paid, sometimes unpaid opportunities, like it could be job shadowing or something that are hosted by alumni at different companies across the country. So that could be something interesting to support support students in their career education as well. Yeah, I agree. One thing that I've been doing is I know some people who are offering very temporary sort of internships. And one of the choices that I've made is just to say, I have a stable place to live right now, and I'm willing to work on a volunteer basis provided that whoever I'm working with will provide me a letter of recommendation for um, oh, for a future career. That's a great plan. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big formal 10-week internship nope. to um, have a, a lot of value and meaning. That's a great plan. Yeah. I mean, I'm supposed to be doing some accessibility testing for some people for like two weeks, but they, the people that I chose to work with really care about their employees. And so I'm not an employee and there's no contract involved, but I think that they'll be able to provide a really good letter of recommendation for a future career, wherever that may be. That's Um, really great. Yeah, so yesterday I was asked on Twitter, and recently I've been asked in person, whether how your dog is doing, and whether those videos will continue. Oh, my dog is doing great. You know, the the thunderstorms that led, her name is Riva, thank you for asking, the thunderstorms that led to the wildfires around here they were unlike anything I've ever seen in California. And she was traumatized for two days after it. She was really frightened by the thunderstorms, but she's doing great. And I will share one other really interesting tidbit, which is um, my kids talked um, us into getting uh, pet ducks. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. And they are the silliest animals I have ever known. And so we have four ducks living at our house right now, not in our house, out of our house, in our yard. And, uh, you know, Riva actually really likes the ducks. At, when she first met them, Strange. we got them these little teeny tiny ducklings that came, that came in a box in the mail. And they all looked like little tennis balls. So at first, we were a little concerned. And then they started growing their darker feathers. And she became much less interested in the ducks because they don't look like a tennis ball. But, yeah, if I, if I do have some more um, dog videos, um, we will need to include the ducks also, I think, because they are really a joy. Yes, absolutely. I really hope that other 
not necessarily instructors, but I hope that other faculty and staff will consider doing something similar because I help, I think that really helps foster connection. Yeah, we've got to be real with each other. We've got to be in, in human connection with each other. And that is the joy of my job is being in connection with students and being in connection with my colleagues and others on campus. That, that's what this is about. So thank you um, for, for affirming that. Yeah, of course. And I think that's about it for time today. But thank you so much for joining us. Cricket, thank you so much. This was really great. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, um, I don't know, um, happy, I guess is the word, that this is going to go out and connect with students. And I'll, I'll, I'll be thinking about all the students who are listening and, and sending my deep, deep care to everyone. That was Dr. Susie Brubaker-Cole, the Vice Provost of Student Affairs. And this has been episode six of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Beidelman. Please send any feedback to communications at assu.stanford.edu. And have a great Labor Day weekend. Oh, 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 o